Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I am pleased to welcome the author of a great new book called War on the American Republic, Dr. Kevin Slack. Dr. Slack is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He earned his PhD in 2009 from the University of Dallas and has written numerous articles as well as another book called Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue. His latest book, War on the American Republic, is as unflinching and bold as the title suggests, and it is about how liberalism became despotism. Welcome to the program, Dr. Slack. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to be here. Well, as we begin, this is going to sound like I'm going through your new book in reverse, but what I'm actually wanting to do with this roundabout first question is to ask about your own experiences. Uh, So hang on for just a moment as I tee this up, mostly for the benefit of our listeners. More than 25% of the pages in your new book, War on the American Republic, are devoted to notes, which means that the readers can, if they choose, dig in and look at the extensive research that you did on the subject. And just before those end notes, you have, of course, acknowledgments where you mentioned some other, I'd say, brilliant scholars who uh, some of them have been my guests here on Core Principles. Those include R.J. Pastrito, uh, Roger Kimball from Encounter Books uh, and the New Criterion, and of course, uh, Hillsdale president, Dr. Larry Arn. Now, I noted with much interest that you said this of Dr. Arn in your acknowledgments. While he made this book possible, that's not to say he endorses its ideas. He is both president and scholar and will find much to disagree with. Still, he, Dr. Arn, stands foremost and very often alone in the fight for freedom of thought, where other small liberal arts colleges have conceded moral authority to those who would enslave them, end quote. And that's really awesome. And uh, I love the fact that uh, folks can disagree when they have a common goal. Uh, the, the how do you get there is, is easy to disagree about and still be good friends and colleagues. Um, so all that to say for this introductory question, Professor Slack, what was your path to Hillsdale like, and what is it like to be a professor at Hillsdale College? How would you say that most likely differs from other colleges? My uh, my educational background, I think you could summarize in saying that it was in the great books. So my uh, my first graduate experience was at the University of California, Davis. I had worked construction for a year uh, after graduating at, at, a, uh, at a state school, Indiana University. Um, and so I just applied to graduate schools. And so that was one of the ones I got into. They gave me a good scholarship. So I got there and I realized most of it was uh, study of statistics, trying to apply these uh, statistical methods to the study of political phenomena. And uh, one of my professors there was in political theory and uh, he liked me, I liked him, but he said, you're really not going to get the kind of education you want here. This is not the kind of program you're, that you're really looking for. You're not going to learn what you're looking to learn here. And so he uh, advised that I uh, transfer 
So I was in the PhD program at UC Davis, and I took a, a year leave of absence, and I transferred to the University of Dallas. And that has a great books program very similar to Hillsdale's. In fact, many of the faculty at Dallas uprooted, as it were, to come to Hillsdale and to start a graduate program. So my first job was teaching at a community college in California. And Hillsdale contacted me, and they said, we started this new graduate program. Are you interested in applying? So I was one of several people who applied uh, to teach in the graduate program and to the undergrads here. Uh, and it's actually very difficult to hire people uh, to teach in a great books program. Uh, the kind of knowledge that you're looking for is it's not usually taught uh, at state schools or even Ivy League schools anymore. Uh, a knowledge about the history of political philosophy, ancient political philosophy, the medievals, the early moderns, the late moderns, and so on. So um, I came to Hillsdale uh, knowing that I'd be teaching in a, a very special program that focused on the great books, uh, but also uh, knowing uh, some of the people that were teaching here, it was also going to be uh, conservative. It was going to try to conserve the West. Uh, and so uh, that's what makes Hillsdale very special, uh, the kinds of students that you see at Hillsdale. Uh, and I very much in, have enjoyed teaching everywhere that I've had the opportunity to teach, um, uh, community college included. When I came to Hillsdale, you realize that the students here are coming from good families, they're morally serious, and they're incredibly intelligent. Uh, I think the average ACT is at 32 right now. Uh, with COVID and all the measures taken, the required vaccinations at other colleges, now we get, I mean, literally the best and the brightest coming to Hillsdale. So, um, what it's like to teach there is real freedom of thought. You can say, as long as you're not vulgar or obscene, you can say anything you want. In fact, uh, many of the classes that I teach, I focus on leftist thinkers and uh, try to dig into them. So this semester, for example, I'm teaching a class called Late Modern Political Thought, uh, and the students read uh, Marx. We just finished Marx, and now we're moving through Friedrich Nietzsche. And so they're challenged, right? Their own conservative opinions, uh, they're challenged uh, every day. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, it's going to make them better as thinkers and uh, better as human beings. That's outstanding. Uh, I bet it's pretty exciting. I actually sat in on a class at the uh, primary or secondary school there at uh, Hillsdale Academy, and I felt like a dummy in their history class. Those ninth graders were way smarter than I. <laughs> what I remember was uh, when I first transferred to University of Dallas, I I felt like I had added horrible education because we're reading all these, all these books written by names that I had heard of, but had never actually read them before. You know, basic things like Homer or Milton or Dante, Augustine, you name it. And so uh, that was an experience. I remember I would come home and uh, my friends would say, what are you going to do? Go to school for the rest of your life? And I'd say, yeah, if they'll pay me to. And I enjoyed it, and I, I never actually expected to get a job as a professor teaching. I feel blessed to have this this job. I just assumed I was going to go uh, into the Navy or be a fireman. That was my, but I would never have taken back the years that I had the opportunity to study all these great works. And I will put in a plug. Of course, the listeners to this program know that I'm a big fan of Hillsdale College, but there's another great books uh, program out there, Thomas Aquinas College does that course of study as well, both in Massachusetts and California now, uh, another highly recommended institute of actual higher learning. Well, uh, I, 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 should, I should add that uh, I married a Thomas Aquinas College graduate, uh, and her brother is the face uh, of Thomas Aquinas College uh, for new students. So uh. Outstanding. <laughs> then I'm just going to go ahead and assume she's smarter than you. As much as uh, I respect your <laughs> intellect, sir, and having read this book, I 
I recognize what a great researcher you are and how you communicate this. And the listeners are going to get that too in our brief discussion. I'm probably going to focus more on the more current aspects of your book, but I'm going to remind the listeners, uh, this is a rich, detailed history. Uh, At first, I want to ask you, Uh, to keep us in sort of common understanding of certain terms, because these get used and misused uh, in general. What is republicanism, and what is this republican form of government that the founders gave us for the United States? Uh, Republicanism is both a a type of regime, a political regime, uh, in which, and here's just a cite from the Federalist Papers, in which uh, the elected representatives of the people actually make the laws. Uh, in which they are held accountable. They're subject to re-election after certain periods of time. Uh, and the real question, right, is set out in the Federalist, but uh, I think the American founders had this in mind, was whether you could defend self-government. Uh, and they look back, here's a aside from Hamilton in Federalist 9, they look back at the history of the, what, you know, what he calls the, quote, petty republics of ancient Greece and Italy, and they saw that popular government hitherto was arguably indefensible. And so the question was, could we order a regime that was heavily dependent on citizen virtue? That was the primary precaution, uh, as Madison says. So all, all the institutions that are set in place are futile in their ends if you don't have a virtuous citizenry. So I would say the second component of Republican government has to do with the actual character, the habits of the citizens. Um, that means they have to be a moral people. They have to practice certain virtues. And there was an attempt by the founders. I make this argument in, in my Franklin book to try to blend together the the ancient virtues, the Christian virtues, and then the more particularly modern virtues of a commercial republic. So uh, it's it's a form of, I think we say today, soul craft, right? And that's that's always the end of every regime. You know, Nietzsche says every political order is genitive. It produces a certain kind of soul. Um, and so I think it, when we talk about republicanism, we're talking about a regime type, but also dependent on a character type. And that republicanism uh, is... It's not just, uh, and particularly, I should say, it's not at the federal level uh, alone. Rather, it's a thread that you can trace through every single institution, whether it's private associations, right? Most importantly, the churches, uh, in the uh, the school districts, and then, of course, you have the towns and the cities and counties and so on. That is good, and it reminds me uh, another institution that relies on our character and virtue is our legal system. Uh, I just did an episode of this podcast talking about the reasonable, prudent man standard at law. And we've lost it because people are no longer generally reasonable or prudent. Uh, they just sort of want what they want. And uh, so you can't really rely now on a fair trial if you get a capricious jury that cares not really much for the, the foundation of why the law says what it says. Anyway, that's a different topic, and uh, we'll get back online with your book. I wanted to ask if you could briefly outline differences and maybe the evolutionary steps between these elements, progressivism, liberalism, radicalism, neoliberalism, and then despotism. Yeah, I, I should I should preface this by saying, uh, you know, in graduate school, there was a kind of narrative uh, that I learned. Uh, and it had it was well the, the American founders uh, and then the progressives the old progressives rejected the American founding, and then they applied a little kind of an argument a hypothesis about these quote three waves of modernity. It's a pretty popular argument among conservatives. 
Uh, and so I didn't really know much, if there was one deficiency in my education, is I didn't know much about 20th century history or authors or anything. Uh, and so I began to research some of these movements. Uh, give me an example, uh, in order to understand the break, uh, because at the time I'd understood there was a break from what we'd call nature to history. But then as I picked up thinkers in each of these different movements, I saw they were all appealing to nature, or most of them were appealing to nature. Uh, and so I was a bit confused, and I realized that there were vast differences between many of these leftist movements that I had, I had simply put together or woven together in my understanding. The old uh, progressives from 1880 to 1920, uh, if I were to say this succinctly, are experiencing a crisis. Uh, I think it's a crisis of the old uh, middle-class Protestants. Uh, it's a crisis of faith, uh, and I, in the book I quote from Noah Porter, it talks about a collapse of belief. Uh, and you could say that's for various reasons, whether it's the higher criticism of scripture or the new Darwinian uh, biology. Um, but in that crisis of faith, they turn to uh, a, another authority, and we'll just call that science, what they understood by science, which is a bit different from what we understand by that word. It also means that uh, insofar as they were going to uh, turn to another authority uh, for truth and a way of living, uh, they believed that the old methods of government were no longer applicable. And so uh, they reject republicanism for what we call the administrative state today, right? In some, it's the delegation of lawmaking authority, uh, literally putting into the hands of experts the power of uh, writing regulations, so legislative, executing them, and adjudication, literally James Madison's definition of tyranny. So the administrative state places faith in these experts in the creation of regulatory boards and commissions uh, to regulate the American economy and other things. I would add to that, the creation of the family court is something I get into uh, in, in the book. Who were the liberals, right? So the progressives uh, were pretty decent, meaning morally decent people uh, who rejected the old mode of governance. Uh, the liberals uh, from uh, well, approximately, that word comes in the American lexicon in the 19-teens. Uh, and uh, I would characterize the liberal era and self-describe. That's how they describe themselves. From 1933 to 1969, uh, the liberals uh, were had full faith in uh, government planning, economic planning. Uh, they rejected what they considered to be the naivete of the old progressives who believed in absolutisms. The old progressives uh, are adopting a philosophy in which they think uh, that they can provide a metaphysical grounding for science itself. When you read the liberals, uh, and let, let, me, let me just add to that in one description, it meant that their view of psychology when you read the, the old progressives is pretty naive. Uh, they apply this uh, kind of silly Darwinism where they think if you just change the environment, you can change the organism and pretty quickly, right? You can develop altruistic moral creatures. When you get to the liberals, now you have other influences. Uh, and I would just say, oh, historically in the environment, what you have is a new pluralism in America after the large migrations, which weren't capped off until the early 1920s. Uh, and so the liberals are urban. Uh, in fact, uh, about in one study, 60% of the old progressives did not support the New Deal in the 1930s. So we're talking about a different population here. The liberals are, uh, they're different ethnically. You have a, a large number of Catholics uh, and Jews who have entered the country um, and also a lapsed form of those religions. And so the liberals are the first truly, I would argue, secular movement of elites in the United States. Um, and uh, they are going to apply this notion of government planning uh, to direct all human behavior. And so they create institutions to do that. 
Um, they are, when it comes to race, they're not the, the ethnocentrists of the old progressive era. Rather, they're arguing for a kind of uh, pluralism among different ethnicities and religions that science will help us manage and balance. So they're not the, uh, the, the older progressives. Um, and so uh, the liberals, you could say, culminate in their aspirations in the 1960s. Uh, and uh, we see this with the big fiscal policies and the creation of the Great Society, but also with uh, the idea that the liberals could use the older institutions, the family, education, uh, and business, to try to direct, uh, to direct the inhabitants. Um, and that would have to do with their inner thoughts on racism or sex. And so the liberals in the, in the 1960s are given free reign um, to implement all these various programs. And their promises are wild, right? They're talking about a colorblind society. They're talking about sexual gratification for everybody. They're talking about the resolution between different classes, labor and management. The radicals rise up in the late 60s. Uh, that's who we're usually familiar with is introducing. Uh, the, the old liberals were, uh, were pro-America, right? This is the post-war liberal order. The radicals are very hostile to America, and um, as best as I can tell, it's because they saw the hypocrisy between the liberals' promises, the things that they thought they could achieve, and reality, and particularly on things like race and sex um, and class. And so you have this, uh, this revolt in the late 60s against liberal American society, which if I succinctly describe it as leave it to beaver America, right? You know, the, the nuclear family, pretty traditional values, still suburban society, and so on. Uh, and so what happens at the end of the 1960s is a class divide in the United States. Uh, and you have a, a new elite class, the younger generation, um, and one half of them, the radicals, ensconces themselves in bureaucracy and in education, and they begin to round out their systems, the things we're familiar with today. In the book, I try to show how our ideas of unconscious systemic racism, um, the idea of confessing your white privilege, triggering, all those things are, those are terms from the late 60s and early 70s uh, that enter the American uh, culture uh, in the 90s, but more importantly, in the 2000 teens, right, with the Great Awakening. So that's one group of elites that comes out of the first generation to go and master college, right, this baby boomer generation. But we often forget that there was uh, another class of elites, and these were the neoliberals. The neoliberals would replace the liberals. Neoliberalism, uh, I would date that from the 1970s to 2008. Uh, and this, I, I would say, if there's a contribution I make to, say, political theorists who study the United States, this would be one of them in trying to figure out who the neoliberals are. Most of the time we think of the Democrats and the Republicans in, say, the Reagan era or in the 70s or 90s as being antithetical. But in reality, there's uh, what you could call a neoliberal consensus, uh, and they are rejecting the big fiscal policies of the 1960s because of the economic problems of the 70s. You know, consider it's only under Nixon that the, uh, the dollar goes off the gold standard. You have the stagflation that rolls in into the 1970s. And so both Democrats and Republicans are saying we need to get rid of this idea of a planned economy uh, and that government is the solution to all our problems. And so both Republicans and Democrats uh, are going to embrace, on the one hand, a deregulation, uh, and on the other, uh, a, a libertarianism in mores. Again, that's Republicans and Democrats. The difference between them is the Democrats, uh, they argue for what was called the zero-sum society. They argue that we ought to deregulate so that we could raise the monies uh, uh, to, in order to implement many of the entitlement programs that were passed several decades ago. 
Uh, whereas the Republicans are the ones who are, uh, you know, printing and spending. Uh, they're the ones, if you look at, say, the deficits under Ronald Reagan, something like 30, 33 straight years out of 35 of deficits. So the neoliberals uh, are important in understanding the rise of monopoly capitalism. Uh, this is the era of deregulation, but also government sponsor sponsorship of a finance economy. Um, I argue that that era comes to an end. What are the things that characterize it? I should point out quickly all the things that uh, somebody like Donald Trump ran on, right? On trade, immigration, and war. Uh, it was Ronald Reagan that signed Simpson Mazzoli that naturalizes three or 2.8 million illegal uh, immigrants and then doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, implement any way to enforce uh, employer sanctions on those who hire more illegals. Uh, or when it comes to. Um, when it comes to war, right, the neoconservative movement uh, carries over into the idea of, of uh, planning democracies and turning other countries into democracies, regime change. Um, in 2008, I argue that all those conservative gods were dead, and I would count those as being libertarianism, neoconservatism, and what I call performance traditionalism. Oh, those are the, you know, the young men who wear bow ties and they talk about, uh, you know, Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk. Again, great thinkers, uh, but uh, just reading the great books alone and really not wanting to get involved in politics, real politics, and to touch on political issues. Uh, I would argue in 2008 those gods were dead, and that's because of uh, what Americans perceived as a failure in Iraq on the one hand, but also the housing market crisis on the other. So uh, you notice in the young generation, young people, if you say free trade today, they know there's a hoodwinking going on. Right, because they're going to say, well, "What do you mean by free trade? If that means outsourcing and globalization, large portions of our manufacturing uh, sector out to China, and that even means uh, giving quarterly profits uh, under monopoly capitalism, uh, that even means outsourcing key defense uh, defense sectors to China. For example, the rare earth metals industry in the 1990s." Um, and so uh, people, and if uh, when when, uh, when open borders becomes a part of this, uh, then you realize, well, this is just inviting the world uh, to undercut American uh, wage earners and gutting the middle class. So the one thing that was promised was was uh, in what was called capitalism would deliver on the goods, and that everyone would uh, increase their standard of living. Nobody's believing that after the Great Recession. Uh, when it comes to uh, the foreign wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, those were just. Uh, you know, our longest, most expensive wars in U.S. history, and uh, people stopped believing in them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that carried over into oh, the Arab Spring, and now it's Ukraine. And so there's something about this empire uh, that is always driven towards eternal warfare. So given that collapse in legitimacy on the right, uh, I think that there was what well, you could argue, there was an oligarchy by the time you get to 2010s, leading journalists are writing about it. Right, whether it's Thomas Friedman, Christia Freiland, uh, she writes a, a piece, and I think it's 2012, The Rise of the Global Elite. She says very clearly, there is a global elite, they meet at Davos, um, and they don't see themselves as belonging to any nation. Rather, they, they see themselves as a meritocracy, uh, and uh, they view all of the consumers in this new economy of 7.5 billion consumers uh, as being the same. Uh, and so one of the examples I use in the book is when Ralph Nader uh, of all people, right? Ralph Nader, he asked the 100 top corporations uh, to say the Pledge of Allegiance before their board meetings. Uh, none of them, or maybe one, actually complied. The rest of them, and I believe this included Ford Motor Corporation, said, well, we're not American companies at all. We're transnational corporations. Uh, so uh, you, uh, you end up with the death of uh, all of the old gods, 
Uh, and so every political regime needing some kind of legitimacy, uh, uh, the elites turned to the left. There were two populist movements. One was the Tea Party on the right in 2010, uh, and they wanted the banks to fail. Uh, they said, well, if this is capitalism, let the banks fail, stop printing all of this money. I think that they misunderstood some of the basics of, of monetary theory. Uh, and then there was the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, right, at Zuccotti Park. Um, and that was a leftist populist movement, right, the source of the Bernie Sanders uh, supporters. Uh, and there at, at uh, Occupy Wall Street, they practiced something called the progressive revolutionary stack. And that meant that they would allow, this was based on anarchist teachings going back to the late 90s, they would allow people to speak based upon their measured level of oppression. And that meant white, you know, uh, white straight males would speak last. Uh, and large corporations began to, began to see that this could be a legitimacy. And they worked with this before in diversity hiring and so on. Uh, but it's only in 2011 to 2015 that you see this explosion in the references to identity politics language, such as intersectionality, mansplaining, whitesplaining, and so on. Uh, and so corporations begin to very openly celebrate diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think this is the marriage of what you could call an actual state church. Uh, the, the thousands and thousands of compliance officers at universities and in corporations who are going to instill this belief system, and particularly to kids, and this is why this has blown up recently, uh, because you have uh, the teaching of systemic racism at the age of four, right? Prescribe, you need to teach systemic racism at the age of four, or getting little children to question their genders. This is all part of the religious teaching that justifies uh, this, um, uh, the, the globalist aspirations of an oligarchy. And I think that's, um, you know, when we get to uh, the final uh, chapter on despotism, um, that's, that's what I'm describing. Wow, that is uh, just a course in this historical and important uh, look at how America has changed over these years. And so we're, we're talking with Dr. Kevin Slack of Hillsdale College about his book, War on the American Republic. I want to uh, ask you to explain to our listeners a statement that you make in the book uh, about conservatism and conservatives. You said that we must reassess what conservatives failed to conserve Americanism, to define what the American people must conserve if they wish to survive. Yeah, I would say what we call conservatism, what, I should say what I called conservatism for a long time had to do with schools of thought that were created in, in the, uh, the, la the latter part of the 1960s and into the 70s. Um, and did they really conserve the republicanism? And by that, I mean both the institutions and the republican character. Uh, and you see that uh, neither was conserved during this period of neoliberalism. Uh, one of the examples I give, and I don't mean to trash Ronald Reagan. Um, I grew up in a military base in part, and I remember uh, we didn't talk politics, but my dad liked Reagan because he gave a raise to service members. Um, but if you look at Reagan, he wasn't conservative, meaning, you know, a traditionalist. He, he spoke the rhetoric. But if you look at the actual policies, you find more of a libertarianism. And there's no real gains made during that whole period of time. Rather, there's an erosion of the middle class economically. But also conservatives, you go to the late 90s, they're not making arguments uh, on social issues. I remember one of the things that stood out to me 
in the early 2000s, the late 90s was, if you ran into an intellectual conservative, they treated uh, Orthodox Christians or Evangelical Christians and their moral opinions, particularly on sexuality, uh, as if they were archaic for real fuddy-duddies. And when it came to sexuality, and here's uh, for the gay rights movement and same-sex marriage, or uh, anything uh, with regard to uh, pornography, these were things that conservatives were embarrassed about. And they were they really were libertarians on all of those issues. Uh, so uh, young conservatives today, uh, they are questioning all of that. And they uh, and I think part of it is they're the first generation to really grow up in a in a pornified society uh, in a way that, uh, you know, old people like us can't really understand. Right. They grew up with the Internet. Um, and, you know, there's various studies on this, right? The first exposure to these uh, sexually explicit uh, images at the age of 12 or 13 and so on. So young conservatives, uh, they, don't, they don't trust any of the older conservative schools of thought, right? It's called conservative ink or movement conservatism. And so conservatives, I'm arguing, uh, need to reflect on what are truly Republican institutions that the country was founded, uh, founded upon and in, um, and uh, what was the Republican character, right? The love of freedom, not just something you study in a book, uh, but uh, real freedoms in, in, in a way of life that required moral virtues, freedoms that were concomitant with uh, a series of duties. Well, I'm going to skip over a lot of the uh, detailed history and some of the things that readers should dive into when they get your book, but I'm going to hint at one of these before asking another more serious, well, uh, more dire question. Um, you talk about a couple of new ideas that were brought in, uh, a new economic doctrine called modern monetary theory and a new revolutionary theory of violence as a way to achieve democratic socialism. So listeners become readers of this book, find out what he's talking about there. It's fascinating and terrifying, but speaking of terrifying, serious threats, here is what I think may be the starkest one from your new book, war on the American Republic. Uh, I'm going to quote this. With the loss of belief in the spirit, worship threatens to return to the bodily rights of Moloch, the Canaanite god that even the Romans found too cruel. Moloch's priests, preying on the fears of commercial Philistine people, reduced life to concern for bare preservation, and they demanded that parents place into the fires of Moloch their own children, whose tiny bodies have been exhumed by the tens of thousands. Noblemen sent their daughters to state temples where they were sexually groomed and prostituted to wealthy bidders, destroying the natural ties of family affection. And in both of these ways, Moloch appears to have returned, end quote. Now, I have heard, Dr. Kevin Slack, similar observations from other people I also respect. So what should we know about this degeneration into that kind of wickedness? That um, every, again, every political order has to appeal to some uh, some religious system or teaching for legitimacy. Um, and if you uh, look at one of the, the political reasons why, uh, it is for purposes of control. Um, and uh, the best way to control somebody are through those, those two forms uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, one of the ways to do that um, is, to, uh, is to impress upon the people 
this overwhelming fear. Uh, and this really happens during COVID, but it becomes part of a whole system whereby there are these dramatic predictions made by uh, supposed experts uh, on the end of the world. Uh, and I give a whole list of these things, right? It's not just climate change. It's things like endangered species. Uh, you name it, the world is coming to an end. Um, and you terrify people. Uh, you don't want them to be rooted in certain traditional folkways. Uh, and with this fear, um, you drive them to certain uh, behaviors and rituals. You saw this, uh, uh, I think, very distinctly uh, during COVID, where um, people were, they were covering their faces in masks. Uh, they, you know, they'd nod to one another in these muffled responses at the store. Um, they became very uncertain just about the air that they breathed. Uh, and this is ideal for uh, any kind of a despot. And you could look to, you know, the great uh, despotic regimes through history, a good example of that. Um, so if you see the function of the fear, uh, it uh, destroys people's confidence in one another, it destroys their, their associations, um, and it makes them reliant upon these overseers themselves. Uh, what I remember was very distinct during COVID uh, was uh, people were never certain if what they were doing was legitimate. And they were always looking to some overseer to affirm them, right? Am I allowed to go here? Am I supposed to have my face mask on? All these small little rituals that could monopolize someone's habits and to make them uncertain in their habit. That became the core. Then also when you get to the family, uh, the, the modern despotism we see today is completely hostile to Christianity and to the family. Why? Well, because uh, these both claim uh, to have a higher allegiance uh, than to the state. Uh, and uh, uh, if you, you know, look at the various examples I give in the book, uh, the abortions uh, or even the experiments on babies. These are things that you wouldn't have believed if you mentioned it 50 years ago or even more recent, you know, 20 years ago. But these are things that are well documented, that are documented, that are going on. So if you can destroy the family, uh, then you can have absolute control over its members. Uh, two of the ways of doing that, one I mentioned in the book is transgenderism. Uh, the other is in the sexual revolution. Uh, if you can have these uh, these state temples or large uh, large state universities where it becomes a very important point to degrade the mores of children, uh, they lose any attachment uh, to the traditions that they were educated and raised with. Uh, and that was the whole point of prostituting daughters off in the temples. It was to say, we're going to destroy these familial relations. You won't have any sacred relations. In fact, uh, even sex, which is supposed to, through intimacy, to bind you to someone else uh, in a Republican order, um, uh, we're going to make sure that that is reduced and watered down to where it won't be a source of loyalty and intimacy anymore. When you get to the transgendered movement, there what you have is an invasion of, of individuals' most private spaces. I've actually been uh, subjected to this uh, uh, going to a conference where the bathrooms in the hotel were all made transgender bathrooms. So you're standing in line, male, female, male, female. Uh, and it's just fascinating to think about what the effect of that is. It is to say, in the most private spaces, whether it's high school or showering, we saw this with Riley Gaines, you've got a, a, a biological male who's walking around naked uh, in the women's shower room, whether it's going to the bathroom, there is somebody of the opposite sex right next to you, right, uh, invading your private spaces, and you become used to that, and you learn to seed those intimate spaces that normally you would have demanded a right to control uh, uh, to control over. And those are ways that despotism becomes very, very effective. Well, of course, I wouldn't want to leave our listeners uh, in abject despair uh, about the return of Moloch's sort of priests. Uh, and you don't leave 
readers there either, uh, Dr. Slack. I want to end our conversation today by asking you about hope and how we win our struggle for preserving liberty. So I'm going to quote you one more time. You say there is hope for those who choose liberty over tyranny, a new right sick of the ruling class's treachery has only begun to rise up to fight for the American way of life and to conserve the American people. So Dr. Kevin Slack, uh, please expand on this message of hope. Give us whatever encouragement you would about how we preserve this nation and our founding principles of liberty. Well, I often tell people, if you have children, there's not, there's not an alternative. There's just, and I give a nice quote from Simeon Howard in the conclusion. If you have children and you're a parent, you can't say, well, I just doom you to slavery and serfdom. <laughs> if you love your kids, then it's your obligation. It's your sacred duty to bequeath to them the conditions for uh, all the higher forms of human existence, right? For the flourishing of humanity. Um, the reason I'm hopeful is because, not just because I have children, but because I see young conservatives and I see that when you get to the left, uh, this, uh, you know, what I'm calling this, um, uh, this, this despotism, um, uh, that, that they're very much exhausted. Uh, and so one of the, one of the, in one of the sections of the book, I just describe how incompetent and decayed uh, this supposed ruling class is, how stupid they are. Uh, and this has become evident to all those uh, on the right. You have all these alternative media sources like your own who are pointing this out. And you have a young generation uh, that very uh, very much understands that to be radical is to be conservative. And all of the jokes, and of course this is what feeds into the attempted censorship by the state, all of the effective jokes by you know outlets like the Babylon Bee are at the ruling class. Uh, and it goes beyond just their stupidity, their incompetence. It gets to their looks because it's true. Right, young beautiful people uh, celebrate uh, strong male bodies, vitalism, beautiful women, and they're able to laugh at right the transgender models that are on the cover of Sports Illustrated or these morbidly obese models that are supposed to be uh, depictions of health. You know, and one of the things that I show my students, I don't even have to say anything. I show them our first supposed female admiral, Rachel Levine who's a man uh, who, has, uh, who has deformed himself to try to become a woman. And the whole, uh, the whole depiction is laughable. And so you end up with these manly men in the classroom that are scoffing at the supposed ruling class and the elites. Um, so I think there's a general attitude change that's taken place by conservatives. They're far more radical. They're questioning things. This is why in the book I try to zero in on some of the conservative schools of thought during the neoliberal period, right? To ask young people, what was conserved, if anything? Um, I think there's a reason for hope uh, when you have a, a revival of conservative culture, uh, a strong belief in oneself. Uh, and uh, it's obvious that uh, when you look at the empire, uh, that it's degenerate, you know, in, in the phrase of the emperor has no clothes. Uh, the people that rule used to have some kind of legitimacy. Somehow we thought that the intelligence agencies or that the presidency, these institutions were filled with smart people out of the Ivy Leagues. Once you've seen videos of these Yale students in 2015 protesting a Halloween costume order, uh, you realize how incompetent the, the next generation of leaders uh, is. Um, what are some of the things that people are doing? Well, they're, they're questioning supposed democracy. You know, what does democracy mean if it means that Mark Zuckerberg buys elections in Wisconsin from his plantation in Hawaii? Um, they're questioning any reference to you know, republicanism. They say, is this truly Republican? Um, 
Importantly, I think uh, you see challenges at the state level and at the level of local government. Um, uh, COVID, I mentioned COVID was uh, probably the best example, the greatest example of civil disobedience in our country's history, right? I mean, more so even than civil rights and the sheer number of people who violated the edicts from their governors. Uh, if you look what's going on at school boards and various institutions, I think we see a, a conservative revival. That's good. That's good to know. I was waving my hand because I was one of those uh, violating our oh, governor. I our... thought you were telling me to stop talking. No, sir. I was just saying, yeah, that's me. I, I got my vaccination by having infection with SARS-CoV-2 rather than an mRNA shot. And uh, so there are those yeah. who would say, how dare you? Let me very briefly then add, if I don't have to stop in the next five seconds, please, please. Say, if you look at that, what's going on in, in, in the red states, um, you see that someone goes to the, becomes a leader in the Republican Party just for a few acts of defiance uh, against uh, federal regulators. Um, and uh, many of the red states passed. They changed their laws with regard to the power given to state boards of health uh, to be able to declare under emergency the lockdowns we saw instituted. Um, uh, they, uh, they changed the laws uh, so that there would be a voter ID so that we can have some accountability in elections. Um, so I think we see action that's been taken. Somebody like Ron DeSantis and what he's doing in education, uh, I think is a signal to other red state governors that when they view bureaucracy, Republicans, if they're going to win, uh, need to take very seriously uh, the fact that most of these bureaucrats and educators are Democrats, very openly so. Some 90 percent of the uh, the, uh, the partisan aligned professors who you know admit that they're a member of a party, 90 percent are Democrats. The administrators are even farther to the left than the professors. Those people don't, they have their jobs by the taxpayer. And it's, it's a pretty straightforward move to say we either want parity in those positions or we're going to purge those positions. Uh, all it would take would be a couple uh, executive orders and you could purge the entire DEI, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion priesthood. Um, uh, and you could do it uh, by principle, you, you know, come up with one. That's what the left does, you know, violation of 14th Amendment equal protection or something like that. But there's no reason why uh, taxpayers in red states should have to put up with these partisan hacks under the under the veil, the guise of neutrality. I think that's the new attitude that we see on the right. And it's a very healthy one. It is. And of course, uh, Star Wars fans will know that the Empire is planning to strike back. They open jackets uh, at the FBI on people who go to school boards and say, hey, please stop showing porn to my little kids. But uh, there is reason to hope. And I'm very thankful for the, the ways that you share that. Uh, listeners, the book is The War on the American Republic. The author is Dr. Kevin Slack. And as if you've uh, picked up on. Uh, he has a lot of great information. We've only scratched the surface. And so I encourage you to get and share this book, War on the American Republic. Uh, well, Dr. Slack, thank you so much for being my guest on Core Principles. And please give my regards to RJ and, of course, uh, Dr. Arne, who I'm going to see next week, by the way, at uh, one of the National Leadership Seminars. Uh, God bless you. Uh, God bless. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information and please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.